Welcome to the latest episode of At The Flicks. Yes, the three old-timers are back with our eclectic mix of news, reviews and rambling discussions on everything movie-related. Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. Now, last month I came up with the idea of The British Purge, where for 12 hours you can kill anyone who doesn't agree with you politically. However, it was correctly pointed out to me by Helen, one of our listeners, that the correct way to do a British Purge would be not to talk to people you disagree with for the full 12 hours. So for this podcast, Neil and I will communicate like The Rock and Vin Diesel. (laughs) Hi, my name is Graham. My main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. If we are looking for a typical British purge, just sneak round to your enemy's house and put their bins out on the wrong day. They would have to leave the country to deal with the shame. Hi, I am Groot. No, I'm not doing Vin vs. Rock. It's as pointless as horror. Hi, my name's Neil, and I pretty much disagree with anything Jeff says, assuming I can get a word in edgeways. Great news, guys. Our listener figures are going up again. This podcast lark is a learning process for me, and I now have learned that it's downloads per month that are the key number for podcasts. So in July, we had about 200 downloads, and this month, August, we have 350. We now have new listeners in South Africa, and Australia is growing as well. So onwards and upwards, our Twitter feed has really taken off recently, thanks to everyone, and especially to Declan, Helen, and Adam for all their support. Not only that, The pod shorts are a big hit with our listeners as well. Good news on that. More have been prepared and we hope to have some news shortly of some very special one-off podcasts. You see, guys, everyone likes the horror shorts. Even Neil's guest appearance on Hereditary was good. Well, that was until we got to the music, Neil. Thanks for that. Just in case you ask, the therapy is going very well. I'm only about a week away from sleeping without the lights on. You may think you can write good scripts about horror, but you'll never get the same reaction as someone who writes wet paint in Braille. Oh, I suppose taking that theme, do not touch in Braille. Okay, back to your corners. We'll be dealing with sports shortly. Until then, let's see what our listeners have been saying about the first shorts and the last episode. Declan and Paul have given us some great feedback on the podcast shorts. Thanks, guys, and we have plans to keep them coming. Phil the Bear, who, by the way, has written an excellent article on the films of Wes Anderson, worth checking out on his website, thought that Jeff might finally be getting under Neil's skin with his constant digs. Good spot, Phil. I'm waiting till he starts monologuing and I'll get my revenge. (laughs) Both Phil and Paul Nicholas were impressed enough by our Whitney review to add that they were going to put it on their to-watch list. Phil also, like me, is a gamer and was impressed by the comments about game music from Robin Smith. Add to that, there was praise from a number of listeners about the interviews. We hope to be doing more of them in the future. As for something we continue to do which only pleases one person, Jeff... What's the answer to last month's quiz? Thank you, Graham, for that glowing endorsement. Now, as you know, last month's quiz was built all around Neil's role model, Sylvester Stallone, in brackets, his later years. The answers are, number one, in which Woody Allen film did Sylvester Stallone play a mugger on a subway train? Bananas. In what other film did Sylvester Stallone appear with Woody Allen? Ants. For what film did Mr. Stallone write, direct, star, write the theme song and sing the theme song? 
Paradise Alley. And it is as bad as it sounds. <laughs> and the final one, Good. so how many Oscars has Sylvester Stallone been nominated for? Three. What? Three? Seriously? Were they during the Hollywood writers' strike? <laughs> Only one was for writing, Neil. And that was for Rocky. The other two were for acting. And he is good. Don't forget, Rocky won Best Picture for its year. Even the great William Goldman said the script was excellent. And another exciting quiz designed to keep you up at nights at the end of the show. The hereditary soundtrack is already doing that. <laughs> On with the show. And this month, the movie feature returns. Not surprisingly, Jeff has been controversial and said, sports movies don't work. They don't. Looks like it is up to Graham and I to step up to the plate and try and score points, avoiding own goals and punt his arguments out of the puck. Once someone has knocked Jeff out, we move on to the popular movie news. After that, there is the movie review section where we'll be giving our views on Ant-Man and the Wasp, Christopher Robin and The Equaliser 2. Finally, the only way is down as we return to Jeff's quiz. Without further ado, Jeff, introduce the feature, please. Thank you, Neil. I don't know what was more exciting there, your introduction or that music. Right. <laughs> After a two-month gap, the main feature returns this month with one of my movie observations. Sports movies, why don't they work? They do work. As I said earlier, just being contentious, you haven't played much sport, have you, Jeff? I never took part in anything. I didn't win, Neil. So who no would have sufficed? Jeez. Stop diverting me from my mission to prove that sports movies don't work. Uh, uh, gentlemen, I must admit I agree with Neil. I've had many entertaining hours watching great sports films. Your argument, like the force, had better be strong with this one. Too late. He's gone to the dark side. <laughs> oh, ignoring all of this, let me explain my theory simply to you. And then I'll dumb it down a little further for you, Neil. <laughs> Sports movies don't work because sport, by its very nature, is a spontaneous event. It can be unpredictable and random. You don't need to know anything about the people performing the sport. Film isn't spontaneous. It is carefully planned and edited for maximum effect. And for a film to have emotional impact, you need to like or at least really understand the characters. It takes the edge or rawness out of the event. That's a tosh. Go on then, give me some examples. I'll do better than that. I told you I would keep this simple for you, Neil. I have structured an argument, obviously weighted in my favour, around four <laughs> sports. The sports that have had the most movies made about them. We can then discuss their effectiveness, and Graham will keep score to see who presents the best argument for each sports. The four are football, or soccer for our American listeners, baseball, or rounders for our British <laughs> listeners, boxing, and golf. That is two team sports and two individual sports. Oh, sounds fair representation. Hang on, just getting my referee badge and whistle to make sure that there is no foul play between you two. I haven't said anything yet. <laughs> no, but you will, honest Neil. Let's start, or we'll be here all night arguing. I, I think. think that's a given. <laughs> Let's begin with football. Neil, as a Chelsea fan, this may confuse you, as I'm going to talk about things such as Honour and history. Spoken like a true, long-distance Liverpool fan. <laughs> that was actually good. <laughs> so let's kick off. Get it? Kick off? Oh, good grief. Ah, uh, never mind. <laughs> let's go to a film that straight away proves my point as to why sport doesn't work in the movies. Escape to Victory. Escape to Victory. 
Oh, very good, Neil. You like an echo that I've got, um, or just That's about incredulity, not an yeah. echo. Oh, okay, <laughs> on just about every level, this film is offensive. <laughs> Why the great John Huston made this, God only knows. It has talented players like Bobby Moore and Pele running around trying to make Michael Caine, who was almost fifty years old at the time, and Sylvester Stallone look good on a pitch. The story, as loose as it is concerns a prisoner of war break from a propaganda match between the Allies and Nazi Germany in occupied France. It is just a terrible film and should be dismissed out of hand. And let's add to that, let's not stop there, two further classics of the football sports movie. Yesterday's Hero starring Ian McShane and When Saturday Comes starring Sean Bean. Bit of a plot spoiler, he actually lives in that one. <laughs> um, both plots are fairly similar in that they are both troublesome players both partially based on George Best, who ultimately prove they are team players and rise to the occasion. Now, here's why they don't work in two simple ways. Number one, the extras are usually talented players and the movie Team is built around stars with little or no ability, so it all looks false. Two, these films, and this will come up time and time again, are not about sports. They're about characters who overcome adversity. It is how they conquer their own demons, so it is more drama than sport which means the sport becomes incidental, which is good, as it is shockingly poor in both films. He was monologuing. I missed my chance. Perhaps he'll do it again. <laughs> Actually, I think you have a point there. While Escape to Victory entertains briefly on a recovering Christmas afternoon, it's not a very good movie. I can see why Jeff didn't want American football included. Those are really bad examples. Escape to Victory was rubbish. And who the hell's seen Yesterday's Hero anyway? 70s film with a disco soundtrack. Let's start with one of your favourite films, Jeff. Gregory's Girl. Really, Neil? There's about five minutes of sport in that film. It is about first love. Can you remember that far back? <laughs> it's like saying Alien is a film about unions because the crew spend at least five minutes talking about working conditions on the Nostromo. No chance. Your, your first love was an alien. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm sorry, I've lost the plot. Yeah, yeah it was. It, was a, it didn't work. <laughs> Long distance affair. Yeah, exactly. As long as he doesn't say she's Welsh, that's fine. <laughs> ha, you fell for my bluff. Let's attack up the right flank with fever pitch, the down United, Shaolin Soccer and Bend It Like Beckham. All highly acclaimed films all deal extensively with football. Fever Pitch, let's start there, is about football supporters. In fact, about one in particular played by Colin Firth and his relationship with his girlfriend. Also note the footage at the end of the film, one of the few snippets of a game scene, is a real-life extract. As for Bend It Like Beckham, again, it's another film about relationships, not about football. The Damned United is a character study of a flawed individual. And I've not seen the other one. Shaolin what? They don't even play football there, do they? Yes, they do. <laughs> I think Neil has a point with Bend It Like Beckham. It's a great film. And the sport of football is at its core. Sorry, Graham, I don't agree. Oh, figures. <laughs> it's principally interested in the relationship between three people. And the sport is almost a side issue. Also, if you want to go down that road, the football recreative of Bendit like Beckham is terrible. Doesn't ever convince. The thing is, Graham, his argument is always going to be every time I mention a film, Jeff is going to say it's about relationships and not sport. <laughs> Neil, 
I'm the fairest person you'll ever meet. If you race a good film and a solid argument, I will accept it. No, you won't. <laughs> Life's too short for this. Let's move on to another sport. I think on balance, Jeff has made a good case here. All football movies he has seen are poor, and there were also some named I have not even heard of. So far, it's Jeff 1, nil nil. Right, just putting on my catcher's mitt for the second team event, baseball. Shall I go first again, Neil? Why not? To be honest, this sounds like a rigged game. Have you ever seen eight men out? I feel like I'm living it. Wow. That's a brilliant baseball reference there, Neil. Point to me, then. (laughs) Come on, Neil. Be a sportsman. In the interest of full disclosure, prior to this discussion, I did sample people to get their views on sports films they like. Interestingly, for baseball, one film kept coming up time and again. Field of Dreams. Now, I'll be honest. Field of Dreams is another of my favourite films. However, it's not a sports film. Baseball is in the background throughout. No games are seen. In fact, it uses the sport to show the relationship between a father and son. Field of Dreams also raises fascinating questions of what America has lost since the dreams and ideal of the 60s. But a baseball film? No. I haven't seen it. I know Kevin Costner is one of his seminal works, but I just haven't seen it. Sorry, guys. I have. And again, Jeff starts with the least sporty film. That's true, Neil. I'll give you, uh, uh, I won't give you a point, but I will accept your <laughs> argument. Ask people, though, to name a baseball film, and don't be surprised how often that title is mentioned to you. And while I'm on a roll, let's add two more from my list. Bull Durham and Fever Pitch. Now, stop looking confused. This is the American remake of Fever Pitch, starring Jimmy Fallon and Drew Barrymore. Once again, it's about a relationship and a fan and can be immediately discounted. Okay, I'll give you Fever Pitch, but Bull Durham, it's all about baseball. There's hardly a scene in the film without reference or depiction of the sport. You say that, Neil, but the film, like Bend It Like Beckham, is about three people in a relationship. If you look at the ending of Bull Durham, the main sporting event happens off-camera, because it is not as important as the resolution of the character arc. Bull Durham is a love story, a funny, adult-themed, but love story. It's not a sports movie. Right, you made your case, Jeff, and I will have to go back and check Bull Durham again. Neil, any comebacks? Yep. Jeff is talking absolute rubbish and deliberately messed out some of the best examples of this sport. If this was a card game in Vegas, the bouncers would now be checking out how he'd marked them before the inevitable beating, while he was monologuing, of course. (laughs) Coming back from that wish fulfilment... Jeff has selected films where baseball is used as a metaphor for how Americans see themselves. Well, he has ignored some thrilling baseball movies where the sport is front and centre. Such as? Such a long list. But let me give you a few examples. 42, the true story of the first black major league player Jackie Robinson, excellently played by Chadwick Boseman. This biographical sports movie follows Robinson from his selection up to and including the pivotal role he played in the Brooklyn Dodgers game against the Pittsburgh Pirates. While it shows some aspects of his private life, the main focus is how Jackie Robinson overcame the racial slurs and put-downs to become one of the greats. In fact, to this day, no one is allowed to have the number 42 jersey. I agree with you, Neil. It's a great film. 
but it's more interested, in my opinion, in the racial aspect than the sport. Oh, shush. The two are linked, and there's some great grief creations of some of his best games. It, this one is a true sports movie, as is another historical feature, The League of Their Own. This wonderful Gina Davis, Tom Hanks film recreates that time during mm. World War II when women's leagues were started. While it's played for laughs most of the time, it recreates the surrounding events and some of the big games. Finally, and coming up to date on this, there's Moneyball, all about the 2002 Oakland Athletic season, where they used a scientific approach to select their players on a limited budget. With a script from Aaron Sorkin, this was a fascinating mm. insight into the modern game. As other sports have used this model, Moneyball is a film which transcends the one sport to represent many others. You see, Jeff. Even though there aren't that many games in the film, the science of the sport is what's being examined here. Its characters don't really have that much depth. The sport is what's important. I have to be honest, you raise some interesting points there. It's just a shame that I, I'm looking at the time and realising it's going on and I think <laughs> we need to move on to the next one. So, Graham, just give me the point and let's move on. <laughs> and with that remark, Neil gets a home run and the score is now Jeff won, Neil won. What's next? Oh, okay. Um, cheating. You were trying to cheat there. No, Yellow card. <laughs> now we move on to the solo sports and we will start with boxing. I'll get my gloves. <laughs> Don't get cocky because you just won a ground. Or oh, Graham's helped you win it. The thing with boxing films is that they usually follow a set formula. The focus is on the character of the man who starts the movie in a dark place and through fighting recovers his pride. So when I focus group this... You focus group this? What? Yeah, I had to be prepared. This is all about winning. This is not a discussion. When I focus grouped it, the film that kept coming up time and time again was Rocky. I know Neil will probably say that isn't a sports film. Uh, a series of film which has as much of a grounding in reality as Neil's belief in his ability to play golf. Again, you start with the least sport-related film. Told you. <laughs> when the original Rocky was being edited, director John G. Alvinson ended the film with the full 15 rounds of the fight between Rocky and Apollo Creed. Audiences were turned off in the preview screenings and then it was greatly cut down. Why? Because the focus is on Sylvester Stallone's character as he goes from loan shark enforcer to get in respect and a girlfriend. It's a new take on the Marty story. The sport was incidental and only used to show his determination. As the series progressed, the sport in sections got more absurd. Rocky Four, I'm looking at you. In fact, the best film of the series was Rocky Balboa, in which Rocky gets a new life and the boxing is kept to an absolute minimum. Oh, and he loses. <laughs> he loses? What, the boxing? In a boxing film, eh? What about Raging Bull, acclaimed by many as the best boxing movie ever? I hear you, Neil. Was that condescending enough? Yeah, I, <laughs> I heard that. Yeah, yeah, I got it. Let's move away from fiction and take these... Three boxing movies based on real people. You mentioned Raging Bull, in which Robert De Niro gives arguably his finest performance as Jake LaMotta. Then there is <clears> Somebody <throat> Up There Likes Me, an early Paul Newman film in which he plays Rocky Graziano, and finally Ali, in which Will Smith played Muhammad Ali. So Neil, you mentioned Raging Bull. It is a great film, can't take that away from you, and it's the reverse of Rocky. It takes a man at his career height, then sets out to destroy him. This is mainly through his personal life as he fights and alienates those closest to him. It compares the man inside and outside of the ring and finds no difference. 
The focus is always outside of the ring, however. The boxing scenes are very heavily stylized. For example, the ring dimensions are deliberately faked for maximum cinematic effect. Scorsese is interested in the man, not the sport. While the other two films I mentioned show the rise of their boxing hero and Paul Newman and Will Smith give good accounts of themselves, again, the movies are more focused on their time out of the ring. The drama of their personal lives are not their sporting ones. As an aside here, there have been two films made about the wonderful Muhammad Ali, the greatest in which he played himself and Ali. Neither does the man or his sport justice, in my opinion. I hate to say it, Jeff, but you put up a convincing argument on this one. I see the point of view as to how these are films about characters, not sport. If I was more than just a referee, I was going to mention Fat City, which has wonderful performances from Jeff Bridges and Stacey Cage. But I guess it falls into a character study again. Indeed it does, Graham. Although unlike Escape to Victory, John Houston shows he can make a good film with a sporting backdrop. Not so fast. The bell hasn't sounded on the last round. I'm not down or out. Don't forget Mark Wahlberg as Mickey Ward in The Fighter or Russell Crowe as James Braddock in Cinderella Man. Two real-life boxers where the focus was on the sport. Same rules apply, Neil. The Mickey Ward story focused on his relationship with his brother and less about the boxing. Again, it is how his character grows during the course of the film as he learns to stand on his own two feet. As for James Braddock, I would say Ron Howard used that film to show that character as an inspiration in the Depression era of the 1930s. In truth, it's as much a film about boxing as they shoot horses, don't they? It's about dancing. (laughs) I'll return to fiction for another punch with two highly acclaimed films, Journeyman, Paddy Considine's, film from earlier this year and Million Dollar Baby, Clint Eastwood's Oscar winning Mm. boxing movie both had some very powerful sports sequences in them, When We Were Kings was that about boxing Jeff? Ali, Foreman, Rumble in the Jungle? True they did however Journeyman had 10 minutes of boxing scenes and that was only to show the injuries that resulted in the very beginning the film is about recovery and it's not a film the Boxing Federation would ever approve likewise Million Dollar Baby fantastic film However, the sport is a lead-in to a different type of film that, again, a boxing federation would never endorse. And When We Were Kings is a documentary. We're talking features here. You've gone outside the lines. (laughs) I would stress again, boxing movies are about characters and not the sport. Okay, I'll give you that one. I say I'm starting to lose the will to live over here. Uh, Score is now Jeff 2, Neil 1. Sorry, Neil. Jeff was left standing when the bell sounded. Are you related to Don King, Graham? (laughs) Careful, Neil. That could be a yellow card offence. Okay, to the last and least of the sports movies. Golf. Now you're playing my game. (laughs) Really? Hitting a ball into a hole with a stick and it's a sport. Ignoring the unbeliever. Do you have some films to talk about for a man whose pinnacle of exercise is arguing all the time? (laughs) I think you should just stick to films. I bet you're one of those people, and again in my focus group this came up time and time again, who believe the ultimate in golfing movies is Caddyshack. (laughs) Really, a silly coming-of-age comedy masquerading as a golf film. The funniest two jokes don't even take place on the golf course, and it has a rather silly animated gopher. Ah, but golf zen master Chevy Chase is very funny. True, but the highlight is Carl the Groundsman, played by Bill Murray, who never picks up a club. Carl uses a grass trimmer to good effect on the Crescent. He also played golf with the Dalai Lama. Big hitter, the Lama. Mind you, if that's the best you've got for golf, I am looking at a hole-in-one here. 
Not so fast, like boxing. Golf movies centre on character development, such as films like Tin Cup and The Legend of Bag of Vance. Not this time, Jeff. The point of Tin Cup, which has some wonderful golfing sequence in it, is to show that the lead character doesn't develop. The whole point of the final golf game, where he could have been famous, was to show he had never changed and golf is the way the flaws in his character are revealed. Uh, good point, Neil. Uh, what are your thoughts on Happy Gilmore? An Adam Sandler comedy about golf that works. However, the other film which really works about golf and Jeff will try to avoid is The Greatest Game Ever Played, the 2005 film which starred Shia LaBeouf and about the 1913 US Open where Francis Wimay beat the great Harry Varden. It's a fantastic recreation of what is reputed to be one of the best games ever. I say it's a film about character development. No, it isn't. The focus is the game, hence the title, the greatest game ever played. Anyway, you're missing the point, Jeff. Sport is not just about the actual match contest competition. It's about our hopes and dreams. It's about the thrill and despair. We like to find out about the protagonists, who they are, how, who they're playing. In movies, as we do our favourite teams, we read about it from the great writers Hugh McIlvenny, Frank Keating and John Arlott to Twitter comments and news. And it's not just about that. For example, Real Madrid versus Barcelona is not just mm. about football. It's about politics, history and a reflection of the differences between the Spanish and the Basques. It's still about a football match. How about England-Scotland in any sport? Sport and so much more, but still sport. The Olympics are always about way more than just the fastest, the highest and the furthest. It's going to be a state of the nations. Their economic might as much as who wins. If a sports movie was just about a game, it'd not reflect that sport at all. OK, OK, Neil, I'm giving you the go. <laughs> Giving you the golf point just to shut you up. I'm happy with that. Which makes the final score, Jeff, two. Neil, two. Don't even ask for a penalty shootout. In fact, as you couldn't get a straight win, Jeff, Neil becomes the victor by default. Yes, <laughs> and I'd like to thank my mum, my oh. dad, the academy. What? Hang on a minute. Sorry, I drifted off when Neil started ranting. Have I missed something? <laughs> Seriously, I'm demanding a fourth official. <laughs> that will be the listener comments. If you have any feedback on this discussion, please let us know. It could change the final result. Please don't. <laughs> OK, after that, let's go to some movie news. On the movie news desk this month, I have something I'm very excited to talk about. The end of Chelsea Football Club as the Russian money goes elsewhere, or perhaps cheating to win a discussion on sports movies. That makes no sense, Jeff, at all. No, the movie I want to t talk about is the personal history of David Copperfield. What, you may ask, sets this apart from other versions of the Charles Dickens story? Well, this one is co-written and directed by Armando Iannucci, the man who last year made one of the few films we all liked, being The Death of Stalin. It seems like I am not the only one excited by it. It attracted a lot of attention at this year's Cannes Film Festival, where the final part of the budget was being put in place. As a result, it's one of the most anticipated features coming in 2019. The personal history of David Copperfield is currently filming in Kings Lynn, Bury St Edmunds, Weybourne and in Yorkshire. And it stars Dev Patel. That is a fantastic casting. He was so good in Lion and Slumdog Millionaire. And he's so underrated. Agreed. And to that, add some of the best British acting talent around. As Tilda Swinton, Ben Whishaw, 
Paul Whitehouse, Hugh Laurie, Gwendolyn Christie. Also appearing is Armando Iannucci, regular Peter Capaldi as Mr. Micawber. Oh, wouldn't it be great if he played that role in the style of Malcolm Tucker? Although then it probably wouldn't be family friendly. <laughs> probably. Ah. And if he spoke like Tucker, then this would be the first version where Micawber would have to worry about more than debt. <laughs> the plan is for this to be released in the fall next year. I would have thought they may hold it back for awards season. It certainly has all the right ingredients for critical and commercial hit. Jeff, over to you. Looking over your shoulder, I can see on your notes it says returning to Wales. Is it true? Can I celebrate now? <laughs> Typical, Neil. Once again, the details escape you. It is returning to Welsh cinema. Now, last month, after reporting on Six Minutes to Midnight, I found out there are a lot more films being made in Wales and there's a lot of interest among our listeners to learn more about Welsh cinema. So mm. this is the hot location ticket in the UK, it seems. The film set in near constant rain. Oh, very funny. <laughs> this month, I am not reporting on one film being made in Wales. Oh, no, two. First up, we actually have a tie with your news, Neil. How come? Well, talented Welsh actress Morvid Clark, who I notice you left off your list of names... <laughs> I can only apologise. Oh, thank you. Uh, to her. <laughs> she, she recently joined the David Copperfield production. Now, she's been working with Sally Hawkin, Billy Piper, David Thewlis and Penelope Wilton on Eternal Beauty. The film has recently wrapped production after a five-week shoot in Cardiff, Port Talbot and Newport. Blimey, they took their life in their hands filming in some of those locations. Anywhere over the Seven Bridge ground. <laughs> oh, somebody, anybody got any of that skyscraper duct tape? I needed to stop my sides splitting. The last of these locations, Newport, is the birthplace of the young writer-director Craig Roberts, who you may remember as the lead actor in the film Submarine a few years ago. As for the plot of Eternal Beauty, it's the story of Jane, played by Sally Hawkins, whose mental state crashes when she's ditched at the altar. From there, reality and fantasy combine in a film which promises to be both funny and heartbreaking. It sounds like it could be an interesting companion piece to Miss Hawkins' big hit, The Shape of Water. Mm. Are you finished yet? Nope. Uh, <laughs> more. Now I have news of a film just about to go into production, and one which will be of interest to you, Graham. A Patriot is a science fiction thriller starring Eva Green, Ed Skerin, before he goes to join The Battle of Midway, which we discussed last month, mm -hmm. Tim Robbins and Kathy Bates. Filming is due to start in a few weeks' time in Swansea and Port Talbot. It is set in a near future in an authoritarian state which has sealed itself off from a world which may, or may not, be at war. It sounds interesting. However, if it's partially set in Port Talbot, how will you know if you're in the war zone or not? Very good, Graham. Jeff, keep those Welsh stories coming. They amuse us, if nothing else. Racists. <laughs> my turn, and I'm picking up my news script with the usual expectation of a Gibson news. Okay, it all looks good. An update on the new Star Wars film, which has recently started shooting in the UK. Jeff, if I find my Mel Gibson in the cast, and that is the reason I'm reporting on this, then you can expect a lot of swearing. Well, I'll break it to you gently. He isn't. However, having said that, I thought he'd make a great Jedi Knight. How about Obi-Wan Mel? <laughs> yeah, more like Mel the Hutt. Right, ignoring all that, 
Here is an update of, for you about the new Star Wars film, which brings the trilogy to an end. And if stories are to be believed, also the end of the Skywalker story. The as-yet-untitled film will be directed by Force Awakens director J.J. Abrahams, as I'm sure the filmmakers wanted to avoid the unwarranted backlash that occurred regarding The Last Jedi. Regular cast returning include Adam Driver... Daisy Ridley, Dommel Gleeson, Oscar Isaacs, John Boyega, Carrie Fisher's daughter Billy Lord, and the excellent Kelly Marie Tran. Surprisingly, and I mean this in a good way, Mark Hamill is back along with Carrie Fisher. It appears that footage of Miss Fisher's filmed for the last Jedi movie will be inserted into the new film. New cast members include Kerry Russell, who was so good in the TV series The Americans, Richard E. Grant, and Billy D. Williams. Yes, Lando Calrissian is back. Can't wait. It helps me get over the fact that Andy Serkis and Gwendolyn Christie will not be returning this time around. Filming is scheduled to continue until Feb 2019. Even with all your science fiction contacts, Graham, you have no hint of what happens this time. Only rumours. It is said that the film takes place three years after The Last Jedi. Also, it has been whispered that all we were told about Rey's parents may have changed in this film. Stop listening for one minute if you don't want to hear this, although I stress it's just a rumour. Rey's parents will be revealed to be Han Solo and Kira, which sort of... I didn't want to hear that, and I did hear it. (laughs) Which sort of starts a loop back to Solo, a Star Wars story, We will have to wait until December 2019 to find out if it's true or not. If we hear more stories coming from our contacts, we'll let you know. Okay, some music and we swap to our review desk. Welcome to the review desk and this month we start with Neil's review of Disney's Christopher Robin. Hang on, didn't they make... Goodbye, Christopher Robin, last year. That was the true story of A.A. Mill and his son, Christopher Robin Mill. This is the continuation of the fictionalised Christopher Robin from the famous books. Now, the movie starts with essentially the end of the Mill books, as Christopher Robin says goodbye to his friend in the Hundred Acre Wood and goes off to school, where he quickly forgets all about them. As the years pass, Christopher Robin grows up and looks a lot like Ewan McGregor. He marries and has a daughter. However, Christopher is a workaholic who ignores his family for his career. That is, until the day he accidentally spills honey all over one of his childhood drawings of him and Winnie the Pooh. From that moment on, the magic lives again and Christopher Robin gets a chance to put his life right. Sounds charming. Neil, your thoughts? As Graham described the film as we came out of the cinema, charming. And it's certainly that, Eeyore. I mean, Jeff. My mother adored the books when she was little, and I read them too. Things like never walking on the cracks of the pavement in case the bears eat you became part of a normal routine. Then there was the Disney films from 66 on. Christopher Robin borrows much from both sources and is better for it. For example, Pooh and Tigger have American accents like the animated features and chunks of dialogue from the book have also been used, such as an, albeit, abridged version of Eeyore's poem at the beginning. All in all, very enjoyable, with several laughs, generally from Jeff's, I mean Eeyore's, general view of life and its inevitable disappointment. You got that skyscraper duct tape, could you pass it back? (laughs) The joke set up by Pooh on the train south playing Say What You See, Tree, Sky, House, I don't know what that is, and the punchline from Eeyore going back north, Disgrace, 
shame, humiliation, <laughs> is not only funny but also mirrors what Christopher Robin is feeling. I loved it, and I warrant there's lots I missed too. I loved it as well. Uh, I think I said to you, Neil, when it was finished, that it was charming. I think it really is the best word for the entire movie, charming. It was a midlife crisis story with heart and charm rather than regret and retribution. Simply, it is a warm, fun comedy for all the family. I was amazed by how much of the words of A.A. Milne survived the transition to CGI augmented live action. I must admit, it rekindled my fondness for the silly old bear. Okay, before I start on my review of <laughs> Logging, let's address the donkey in the room, shall we? <laughs> Neil, who told you that my wife refers to me as Eeyore? It's not fitting at all, from you or her. <laughs> as for the film, it clearly wants to be Paddington. However, it Ooh. doesn't quite capture that magic or spirit from those two British movies. In fact, and I've got to be honest, much of this was quite dour. That said... I did enjoy it. Yeah. Actually, maybe there is a bit of a you after all. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, Ewan and McGregor is always good. His descent into midlife crisis is cleverly done and he has to learn to laugh and play again. The voice actors do a great job keeping it low-key. Hayley Atwell is underused, sadly. Bronte Carmichael as Madeleine is excellent given her limited experience. And Mark Gattis is brilliant mm. as the owner's invidious son. I also like that Christopher Robin's employees reflect the characters of the toys in the Hundred Acre Wood. A very nice touch, and I'm sure they enjoyed channeling their inner stuffed toy, just as Jeff enjoys channeling his inner Eeyore. And there's still tons I missed. There you go again, Neil. Another Eeyore reference. Are you trying to make an ass out of me? You're doing a fine job yourself. Hey, I'm fair not beating all my reviews. Told you. <laughs> Let's return to Christopher Robin and talk about the acting. It's hard to differentiate as to who gives the most two-dimensional performance, the animated toys or the human characters. Only one actor stands out for me, and that's Mark Gattis. As you said, Neil, he's brilliantly funny in his role as the odious boss. There is more than a passing reference to Hugh Grant in Paddington 2 here, and I say that as a compliment. As for the others, Ewan McGregor is coasting for much of the movie, although he clearly is having a fun as his character of Christopher Robin remembers his childhood. As for Hayley Atwell, again, I must agree with Neil in that she is underused in an underwritten character. Everyone else, I'm afraid, is just a stereotype. Now, moving on to the animated performances, it's great to have Jim Cummins back as both the voice of Pooh and Tigger, and it is something that resonates strongly from watching these Disney films of Pooh and Tigger from the 1970s. Thankfully, they ditched the recording Chris O'Dowd made for Tigger. That would have been as wrong as Colin Firth voicing Paddington. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with both of you. With the exception of Hayley Atwell, who is criminally underused throughout, she does do a bit of Peggy Carter at the end, running about and driving fast. The daughter was also very good. And a shout out to the uh, wardrobe department for getting the girls uh, clothes and hair right for that quintessential 1940s look. I did enjoy her little uh, E.T. homage as uh, she threw the ball into the bush and then it rolls back out across the ground and she screams. That was just nice. McGregor, uh, I thought he was excellent. He he played the role of confused man trying to do the right thing, juggling the demands of career and family. I particularly liked 
the rebirth sequence in the in the pool of water. I also like the briefcase as a symbol for grown up responsibilities, and the only thing left in his briefcase was Jeff's tail. <laughs> nice metaphor for the emptiness of business right. life. You talk about water birth, then you talk about my tail. Thank you. <laughs> Finally, the pantomime vil- villain of the movie, Mark Gattis, as you both say, I thought he was brilliant. Um, from Mycroft Holmes to the idiot son of a woozle. He always delivers the goods. Lovely bit of slapstick when his character is introduced with him destroying the stack of suitcases. Again, a nice metaphor for his destruction of the company. And he plays golf. I think we don't need to say any more there. (laughs) Christopher Robin's descent into midlife crisis is cleverly done using Pooh Bear as his guide and advisor and the heavy mist of the Hundred Acre Wood. The scene where Christopher Robin and Pooh sit on a fallen tree and watch the sunset Mm. served brilliantly as a confirmation of his redemption. The return to the office and his moment of clarity, paid holidays, sell more suitcases, was a light and easy message that employees need to be more comfortable to free their minds. The director, Mark Forster, director of Quantum of Solace, World War Z and Finding Neverland, keeps it simple and light. The focus is on Christopher Robin and his misplaced sense of fun and enjoyment. The screenplay is where I had a slight problem. They basically rewrote huge chunks of Hook. Mm. Businessman obsessed with work, family life suffering, enter Tinkerbell slash Pooh and his flight slash portal in the tree to a land where he needs to find his inner child to escape. His mind is fogged by work and needs to be unlocked by Tinkerbell slash Pooh and their friends. He learns to fly slash play and saves the family. That said, it's the same as Mary Poppins too-ish. That said, most films followed one of several standard narratives refer Mark Kermode's Secret of Cinema. So that's okay then. (laughs) Spot on then, Neil, with your comparison to Hook. That is a fine line to play as the lead character, in this case Christopher Robin, must be almost unlikable for the first part of the film until that transition happens. Again, that is a theme used in the first Paddington, where they got the lightness of tone right. I just don't think they did here or in Hook for that matter. That said, the mooted tone used by cinematographer Matthias Koenigsweiser doesn't help the situation. Well done. Dispelling an air of Eeyore-type gloom overall. Bloody hell, Neil, you got me saying it now. This is not to denigrate Matthias, who did an excellent job with atmosphere, both gloomy and light throughout the film. It is a shame that he couldn't apply his cinematography skills to sort out the script issues. So some of these script problems refer to this comparison within the film. On the one hand, you have the reawakening of imagination, and on the other, the hard, cold world of business. Except it's the business world of the 21st century, and not when the film was set circa 1950. That jarred for me, as it didn't create the parallel world they were trying for. And as for this flagrant disregard of the 1938 paid holiday... Which was stopped during the war. No, 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 we've been through all this. Gentlemen, we've been through all this. Can we just... Okay. Hang on, right. No, no, you two... God, I've got to get me referee's whistle back out again. All I'll say to end my part is... I'm sorry for all the managers in that business, including Chris and Robin. They should be sent to jail for ignoring this. <laughs> and as for the workers being taken in by this nonsense, because it's not Jeff, all the management It's a children's fault. film. It's no, a no, no, children's film. No. It's no wonder Brexit happened. It's, it's a children's film. All right, film. over to you, Graham. I'm going to go search my tail. I left her in a suitcase somewhere. <laughs> Back to reality, or sort of, yeah. Good Direction by Mark Forrester. 
Keeping the entire thing light and fun while balancing the child and adult themes, the cinematography was was excellent, with lots of wonderful slow panning shots, the landscapes and the soft lighting within the Hundred Acre Woods, lots of slow walking in the woods, contrasting with the running and fast trains and cars in London. Uh, I thought the tone, the mist and the lighting were just excellent. Again, the dressing and locations were perfect. The abandoned look of Christopher Robin's childhood home, I thought that was great. And the Art Deco office with that wonderful hardwood floor for the noise of efficient hurried footsteps. The the cosy family home with the dread of the cold hard boarding school ever present. When this comes out on download, I might watch it again uh, just with the sound off, just for the cinematography. I'm no expert on film scores, but I noticed a lot of music Mm. from the Disney films slipped in here and there, but not too much. Good to hear and subtly done. Yeah, the musical motifs from the cartoons were charming. There's that word again. Just motifs, which was another balance the director achieved. Right, find my tail and I'm back. (laughs) For this part of the review, I'm going to swap from Eeyore to Tigger and bounce in exhilaration at the wonderfully lyrical score from John Bryan and Jeff Zanelli which skillfully weaves in some of the more famous Sherman Brothers songs. And to think this almost didn't happen, the guy stepped in after the sudden death of original composer Johan Johansson, for whom there's a touching dedication in the end credits. One of the best film scores of the summer. Wow, how long did they, how long did they have to, to write the full score for the film? They have to take the... the... Yeah, I mean, he died, I think it was earlier this year. Holy cow. Um, I might be wrong, it might be last year, but that said, you know, something like this, when you think that there are musical mm. numbers integral into the film, yeah. they would have to step in and mm. work through that as well. So they did a cracking job. Mm. Yeah. Amazing. So, c'est charmant. Your final thoughts, gentlemen. Delightful, pleasing, pleasant, agreeable and charming. Did Neil just swear? <laughs> no, that was French. C'est oh, okay. charmant. Oh, okay, sorry. French. Right. Okay. It's charming. <laughs> right. For the sake of this discussion and to show that, you know, I am the better person, I will put to one side all my comments on the business world <laughs> and say it does, despite its dour atmosphere, pass away a couple of hours very pleasantly. Thanks mainly to the wonderful animated creations and not mm. the human actors. Good fun. Christopher Robin is part sugary and part bitter. Paddington 1 and 2 set the bar very high Mm. for bear-related fun, and Christopher Robin can't hit those heights. That said, the film is a welcome trip down memory lane and possibly gains a new audience for A.A. Milne's four main children's books. Other films to watch if you liked Christopher Robin, the previously mentioned Hook and Mary Poppins, Goodbye, Christopher Robin, from last year, and Paddington 1 and Paddington 2, because they're brilliant. However, Goodbye, Christopher Robin is not a children's film. No, it isn't. Not by any stretch of the imagination. No, I don't think we have many children listening to this. Oh, cheered me up. <laughs> exactly. Oh, good boy. There's one. <laughs> let's continue with the reviews. The final two are both sequels, so let's start with Jeff's, which is Equalizer 2. Is that the film Jeff went to London to see without us, in case we didn't like it? 
That's the one, Neil, and trust me, we will discuss that in the review. As for the plot of Equalizer 2, it's set a few years after the events of the first Equalizer. Robert McCall, Denzel Washington, has now accepted a role as a helper for people whose cause seems hopeless. To highlight this, the film starts with Robert's latest mission to rescue a girl kidnapped and taken to Turkey by her father. This opening action sequence shows his particular set of timed skills in their full glory. After that, he returns to America... All seems well until his close friend, Susan Plummer, Melissa Leo, is brutally murdered. When Robert investigates how she died, he finds the truth to be an uncomfortable reminder of his old life. A reminder he must now face and deal with. Jeff, is this action sequel the equal to the first? Not quite, I'm afraid, Graham. Although it, it's quite close. I mean, Denzel Washington seems to be moved into the space recently vacated by Liam Neeson for the more mature man action role. So for you yet, Neil. <laughs> uh, so not equal, but not below par either. Again, just like Neil. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to act as referee for this one. It was okay. I liked the first film, and this one wasn't a patch on it. That said, I liked his helper to the hopeless persona, and action scenes were okay too. Let me just say, before I start, that I really liked the first movie. However, this one, I just hated <laughs> Now, hate seems to be a strong emotion for an action thriller, but I really hated it. Whilst watching it, I moved between boredom, irritation, annoyance and into depression. How do you think I feel dealing with Neil? (laughs) (laughs) Very funny. Yeah. What the hell was someone as talented as Denzel Washington doing in this mess? I cannot say one good thing about this movie. In fact, when the movie was over, I turned to Neil and said, that was the worst movie of the year. It made the Meg look like a seminal masterpiece. It was one of those rare rare movies. I must have checked my watch about five or six times, thinking, when is this suffering going to end? I'm going to talk about actors in a minute. Before I do that, I have to ask... Are you doing this just to be otherwise, Graham, or are you suddenly starting to morph into Neil? (laughs) Okay, moving on, let's talk about these actors. What intrigues me on the acting front is this. Here is a black actor who's taken over a role which was established by a white actor and made it its own. Now, no one compares Denzel Washington to Edward Woodward, who played the role previously. That's because he gives a real authority to the role of Robert McCall. That said, because Denzel is so good, Mm. the rest of the cast can never really get to those heights. So, for instance, Melissa Leo and Bill Pullman, both highly acclaimed actors. I mean, Miss Leo won an Oscar, for God's sake. But they're overshadowed by the force that is Denzel. Pedro Pascal, so good in Kingsman the Golden Circle, tries hard. But even he doesn't really make much of an impression. That said, I'd be interested in what ended up on the cutting room floor in connection with his Mm. character. I largely agree with Jeff on this one, kind of. Denzel is a brilliant actor. Man on Fire is a favourite of mine and he rarely disappoints. Melissa Leo was excellent in both films. As his only confidant, the rest are, as Jeff says, rather dwarfed by Mr Washington. Really? Was there anyone else in this movie? (laughs) Okay, I must have missed that. I knew I was going to have to review this movie, so I went back and looked at the first movie. Totally different movie. It had pace, good story, and most of all, the people I cared about. This second movie had none of that. And you haven't mentioned your view on the central performance from the great Denzel. (laughs) I thought Denzel was fantastic. I always think Denzel, he can just deliver. He was so good. He was the one thing that just shone out in this. 
Mm, yeah, absolutely. I, I love Denzel Washington. I thought okay. he, yeah. think everything he's done is great. I just think he was in the wrong movie if his talents were just wasted in is this thing. Is it his first um, sequel? It is his first sequel. Ah. That's absolutely correct, yes. Why? Why has he done the sequel? It's a why. It's a big why. Yeah. The Well, the money, I imagine. <laughs> Yeah, okay. he's picking up the check, and yeah. Yeah, and, you know, it's not that bad. I mean, but also, not only is it, you know, it's his first sequel, but it's his fourth time of working with director Antoine Fuqua. Now, they've clearly got a, an ease working between them, and it helps, of course, that Mr. Fuqua is one of the best action directors working in Hollywood today. And apart from the Equalizer films, he's also made hmm. Tears of the Sun, one of Bruce Willis's best film, Olympus Has Fallen, which hmm. is Dreadful. far better. Dreadful, yeah. Yeah, it's shocking. Really? Olympus is falling. Oh, no, no, the action no, no. scenes in it are actually superb. No. Yeah, but and the film kill... is rubbish. No, 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 no. They kill loads of North Koreans. You never trust them. <laughs> uh, and the Magnificent the... Seven. Right oh, up no, to that, them. That is, a, that is a fantastic movie, yeah. Yeah. All, all of these films have a bit of darkness to them, and they're tough action films. I like them all. Most of this film is well put together and nicely balanced between character development and action no. sequences. Yeah, I didn't think you'd agree, Rem. It's only in the finale that things go awry, <laughs> with a misguided denouement. And that's much like the first film, it's exactly the same flaw. That said, the final shot of the film is a very well-presented homage to The Searchers. Anthony Farquhar, is this really the man who brought us The Magnificent Seven, that Akira Kurosawa masterpiece? Uh, Kurosawa looked up to Farquhar. <laughs> It's poor, there's no sense of urgency, danger or lurking menace. I had hours to get acquainted with the central characters and I still didn't care if any of them lived or died. There was no threat, suspense or revelation. It was just a slow plodding procedure of getting Denzel's character from point A to point B. There were an entire cast of secondary characters introduced somewhere around the ninth hour of this monster whom I couldn't care less about. The old man who lost his sister and a painting. Don't care. How does that move the plot forward? The Middle Eastern woman who grew vegetables outside Denzel's flat. Don't care. The passengers in the back of his lift. What would they got to do with anything? Eight, nine hours. Were you watching this on one of those interstellar worlds? <laughs> it just felt like that, Jeff. In fact, it felt longer than that. My own personal theory is that he was given a terrible script and told to film that, and this is why the action set pieces jump out from the rest of the boredom. The rest of the movie is totally flat. Oh dear, I think I'm going to have to get a sedative for Graham. <laughs> I think it needs a bit something stronger. Um, okay, I'm trying to refocus here on my review, but I must admit I was expecting you to blindside me, though I didn't expect this from Graham. What I really like about The Equalizer 2 is that it's a continuation and not a rehash sequel. Let's look at this sequentially. The first film was the prequel to the TV series. The TV series has happened, and this film sort of takes place after that. As the film opens, Robert McCall has found his call-in, um, almost a play on the name there. He is not the closed-off person he was in the original film. Now he is mixing with the public as a Lyft taxi driver, dispensing advice in a way you wish taxi drivers would, but never do. <laughs> yeah, right. Also, there are a number of subplots running, which Graham has disparaged, which shows Robert trying to help others, which could easily have been a whole episodes of the TV series for each one of those. And the heart of the film is McCall confronting his past, a past which we gradually learn has now become corrupted. Indeed, the way he works with his old team is a clear parallel to Obama in America. When oh, he was in go. charge, they were, <laughs> they were a force for good. Now with him gone, they are lost. 
and resort to other tactics. It takes Obama, sorry, McCall's return to sort them out. <laughs> Clearly, this film is not made by a supporter of Orange Man. Now, this is unfortunately where the film loses it. That relationship between him and his old team is not explored. Mm. As they were trained by him, they should know McCall's tactics and almost be one step ahead of him. Also, McCall should be in conflict here. He should have feelings for these guys he once worked with who have become corrupted. None of this, unfortunately, comes across. What we have instead is another finale where Denzel character almost becomes a superhero saving a day. And you know how much I love those type of films. <laughs> Always the connection to political themes. The outsourcing of the military has caused problems, but the theme isn't new. Jack Reacher, Never Go Back, mm. dealt with the uncovering of rogue outsourced killers. EQ3 will presumably look to eliminate the people pointing the contractors in the right direction. What theme? Did anyone understand why the guy and his wife in Brussels were murdered? Bad people with lists of people they need to kill... Really very one-dimensional. I understood the Je- reason why. Jeff, we're going to need a bigger sedative. <laughs> or a bigger harpoon, yeah. <laughs> anyway, some great dialogue in the film, which we've not discussed yet. And here's a couple of the better quote, which captured the essence of the film. And there's that continued theme of religious undertone, which was in the first film. So here's my first one. So I'm going to kill each and every one of you. And the only disappointment for me is that I can only get to do it once. Hey, fantastic. <laughs> and, uh, of course, the religious comes up with, We've all got to pay for our sins. Wasn't the first one in the trailer? Yes, Neil. Sometimes they use good lines from the film in the trailer as a selling point. No, that was the only good line in the movie. It was so good, they used it in the trailer. Denzel delivered it with so much passion that it pops off the screen like a firecracker. If only the rest of the movie wasn't such a damp squid. Okay, I'm moving on. Like the sports debate, we're all going to lose the will to live. So let's go to cinematography. The film has a great use of the high anamorphic lens, although I don't think it helped that much in the muddle finale. At least you both agree on the ending. (laughs) In this case, anamorphic lenses just got more of the dreadful movie onto the screen. (laughs) I know that anamorphic photography has gained popularity in the current digital age because they can now do it reliably. But if the story is this poor, then the clarity of the projection is immaterial. So let's go from cinematography to music. (laughs) On to the music. Harry Gregson Williams scored the first film as well and continues his themes from that movie without, to be honest, adding much extra. The loneliness of the Robert McCall theme does stand out. But again, that's a repeat from the first film. Pass, unless there's some iconic music that adds to the story. I can't tell good from bad. For example, the start of the Batman set piece in the Christopher Nolan films. Brilliant. (laughs) But otherwise, nah, not really. <laughs> no idea. Was there any music? My ears shut down as I lost the will to live. I think he's going full metal jacket, Jeff. <laughs> more, like, more like Apocalypse Now. <laughs> uh, so listeners' comments, we've got some. Um, from Phil. All right. Uh, greater confidence and assurance than the original. The opening third of the film is given a lot of time to breathe and really gives a sense of McCall's purpose in life and is much better for it. The action is suitably brutal and well shot. Washington sells his character's motivations and it's an entertaining watch. After Phil's excellent summary there, time to sum up. Well, I think most people might have gathered by now that I don't like this movie. And I really? Thought, I, I did. I thought it was terrible. Don't sit apart, on the fence. Apart from Denzel, who delivers a good performance, and his old boss, played by Melissa Leo, uh, the rest of the cast were meh. The principal bad guy had the presence and gravitas of an empty paper bag. The gang of assassins were so terrible at their job that one of them was killed by some self-raising flower. Really? 
Good is... action scenes, great actor, stuck in a terrible story. It was just disappointing. EQ2 was okay-ish, but not a patch on a standout summer blockbuster of mm. 2018, Mission Impossible Fallout. Yeah. Neil, I must compliment you on a fair review of this Please action film. don't. Oh, no, no, I have to. Yeah, when, you, when you write, I must point it out. Graham, yeah. I hate to say this, but most of what you said, including that flower remark, are total bollocks. <laughs> As I said... I'm picking it, it up from you, Jack. <laughs> it has the same flaw as the first film, an over-the-top and unsatisfying ending. That aside, it is a superior and intelligent action <laughs> film. One of the best films of the oh, summer. No. The combination of Denzel Washington and Antoine Fuqua has produced yet another winner. It's no wonder this film is being used in certain areas of America, and you can check this out online as an example of the qualities of good leadership. Oh, good grief. <laughs> I've learned from it. I hope you, our listeners, do. Anyway, moving on. If you liked Equalizer 2, then I would also recommend to you The Equalizer, the original and slightly better film, although the ending is also as poor. Tears of the Sun, Antoine Foucault directs this excellent Bruce Willis behind enemy lines feature. The Fugitive, another entertaining feature based on an old TV series. Mm. Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones star in this one. Callan, if you are interested in seeing what the original Equalizer star Edward Woodward was capable of, then look no further than this excellent spin-off from the British spy TV series of the same name. And after all that quality, time to go to another bloody superhero movie. Over to you, Neil. Well, I wonder what Jeff thinks of this film. (laughs) Another bloody superhero movie. Do Marvel bring one of these out every week now just to annoy me? Listen, I know this can be difficult for you. The film is set after the events of Captain America Civil War, but before the events of Avengers Infinity Wars. Jesus, that isn't confusing at all. It's like looking after a recalcitrant four-year-old, and no, that doesn't mean you're made of chalk. Back to Ant-Man. Paul Rudd, Michael Douglas and Evangeline Lilly all return to rescue Janet, Hank's wife, Hope's mother played by Michelle Pfeiffer. She, as mentioned in the original film, has been trapped in the quantum zone for the past 30 years. Unfortunately, Scott still has a couple of days left of his two-year house arrest, part of his plea deal following his role in Civil War. Before he can start the rescue, the trio must first avoid the authorities, a high-tech criminal gang, and the very mysterious Ghost, who seems to have a connection to the quantum zone, Sounds exciting, Graham. Is this another home run for Marvel? In a word, Neil, no. It's very much a side project. It is set in the Marvel Universe, but is not what I would call a core component of the overall Marvel Universe machine. Ant-Man pops into the main universe for cameo appearances, like in the airport battle between Team Cap and Team Iron Man. But he is not really a key player. There's only one key moment in this movie when the main Thanos story impacts the characters of this movie, and that is in the post credit scene. My overall impressions is it's a fun couple of hours. It's not great or even memorable movie, but it's just fun. The cast all give good functional performances without any real emotional depth. I didn't really need to care about the characters as they are only really cartoons in the strictest sense of the word it is a comedy action buddy movie with a bit of rom-com thrown in for good measure 
Well, this time, Graham, I agree with you. This God, is the blimey. second filler movie from Marvel this year, like that pointless Black Panther. Oh, now, oh, to, be, <laughs> to be fair, the second half was fun as they juggled a number of subplots, but on the whole, it's like Skyscraper. It's dumb and empty. I would say that going in to watch Ant-Man the Wasp, my expectations were about the size of this superhero. Hmm. But then that's the same I can say for all of this type of movies. Oh, sorry, guys. It's funny, engaging caper movie with a bunch of characters from the previous film. And it has Michael Peña in it. Enough said. Yeah, uh, Paul Rudd, as Ant-Man, delivers his stereotypical everyman hero, who is a superhero in his heart, but just can't seem to pull off the gravitas of Captain America, the coolness of Iron Man, or the flippant one-liners of Spider-Man, a truly second-league player who helps out in the Premier League when the chips are down. I thought the team of Rudd, Lily and Douglas worked well together. Marvel did a very clever casting job to beef up the comedy in this sequel. They brought in experienced comedy actors, the use of Randall Park, as the detective was a great idea and he could play off against Rudd and worked well, very well, in fact, with Ant-Man's daughter. The real comedy treat for me was the trio of Michael Penna, David Dashmalchen and T.I. I thought they really worked well together and delivered some of the best lines of the movie. I was slightly disappointed that Lawrence Fishburne didn't get more to do as I think he's a fine actor. The two leading women were excellent. Lily was strong and capable and was excellent in the action sequence. Hannah John Kamen, fine British actor, was great as Ghost. She was also really good in Ready Player One. She was a villain with a good, clear motivation. A bit of a hallmark for uh, Marvel movies, that. Mind you, I thought she was great when she was Dutch in the TV series Killjoys. The cast were great, and I don't think anyone underplayed or felt flat. Good teamwork. I've not much to add to that. The cast is good. The comedy is laid on really thick, which is good for, as you say, Graham, a second division character yeah. in the MCU. Well, it's a shame they didn't get a second division paycheck for this work. <laughs> Paul Rudd, Michael Douglas and Michelle Pfeiffer were all just serviceable, which if you think of how good a comic actor Paul Rudd is and you have him play it straight, it's doubly disappointing. That said, I do agree with both of you about the performances from actor Michael Peña, who, let's be honest, couldn't give a bad performance even if he tried. Mm, true. And true. Randall Park. I noticed Mr Park is appearing later this year in Aquaman, so this to him was training for a far better superhero universe. <laughs> Finally, and the biggest disappointment of all for me, was how poorly one of the best actors of his generation, Bobby Carnival, was used a supporting role in which his primary point was to hug Paul Rudd. <laughs> An absolutely criminal waste. Back to you, Graham, before I start to rant. No, that was terrible. <laughs> Bizarre as well. Why, why was he in the movie if that's all he was going to do? Anyway. All right, OK, back to the director, I think. Um, Marvel brought back um, Peyton Reed, the director of the first Ant-Man film for this one. The director's job on a movie like this is to make sure that the movie makes sense and that all the action sequences deliver the Marvel standard punch. Using that criteria, I think he landed that punch. I have said this before, but with a very story-driven, action-heavy movie like this, the director really is on rails. He had to keep the pace going, make sure all of the multiple storylines made sense and that the narrative is not lost or overwhelmed by the special effects. I think Reed got the balance just about right. 
In the second half, I agree with you. The first half was all over long setup. Yes, Peyton Reed and his editors did a cracking job of keeping all the set pieces going in the second half. However, throughout, I still kept wondering how Edgar Wright would have handled this. <laughs> Differently. Diff- very differently. Okay, let's go on to the cinematography. Uh, I am so bored with these bright, well-lit interiors of modern movies. Paul Rudd's house interior was exactly the same lighting as the Icon office, as the interior of Michael Douglas's lab, which is strange because the, the opening uh, set piece, which was in the past with the digitally younger Michelle Pfeiffer and Douglas, was excellent in the soft-muted tones and the dreamlike quality. The jump back to the current day was nice and clear as the tones, colour and lighting changed and then you basically stuck there. The real world lighting lighting was functional and the quantum realm was fantastical. I've not got much to add to what you've just said, Graham. All I can say is that the quantum realm is lit a bit like the Stargate in 2001. (laughs) The filmmakers could have shown a bit more visual flair than that. However, as you said, the whole thing seems functional rather than adventurous. Quite a bit of uh, listener comment on this. Friend of the show, Phil the Bear, says, It features some brilliant gags. Lang naming his aunts is genius. Some hilarious returning characters, Michael Penner's Lewis. And some brilliant new ones, Randall Park's FBI agent. The enemies are smaller scale. And intriguing with Walter Goggins, Black Marketeer, and Hannah John Kamen, Phase shifting ghost having very different agendas to mess with our hero's plans. And it is endlessly inventive, from a luggage lab, Hot Wheels cars, and an end credit sequence recreating scenes from the film in models. Declan's view is, I like the first one, and equally this one. They felt less macho than the other Marvel films, more comedy and light entertainment. Michael Penna has the best lines, and Paul Rudd is still good in his role. A good 7 out of 10 from me. And finally, from Philippa... We went in with low expectations and we both thoroughly enjoyed the film. Good ending. My final thoughts are, great little movie, and as I said at the start, more of a romantic buddy movie than a core Marvel movie. I think this is the point where I should talk about the post credit scene. I love this and was really quite a shock to me. Did not see this coming at all. This caused me to do a lot of thinking. Time travel, where is Captain Marvel... Could there be a much bigger role for Ant-Man in the next Avengers movie? This movie gets a solid four stars from me for fun, action, pace and an intriguing little nugget at the end. Do you really think so? On the strength of this, the whole range of Ant-Man is now used up and I think like the Hulk, he will just feature in ensemble casting in the future, which means obviously more Marvel films. (laughs) But let's talk about that mid-credit sequence that you were so happy about there. And this is a warning to anybody who hasn't seen the film yet. Jump over this as I'm going to be talking about it in a bit, bit of detail. Or just jump over it anyway. Because <laughs> you're talking, Jack. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, those insults shouldn't have given anybody who didn't want to be here enough time to move on. Not me, though. So in that sequence, Ant-Man is trapped in the quantum realm because we have reached the point in Avengers Infinity War where Thanos has snapped his finger. Now, think about this. The events leading up to that from the initial attack on New York were about a week, and they would have been in the, they would have generated more headlines than Orange Man. So where has Ant-Man and his team been hiding all that time? In San Francisco? They get newspapers and TV there. Surely they would have seen what was going on. So they ignored it. Distasteful. And a poor ending to the second string superhero movie. Small in stature and ambition. And with that, 
I hand over to Neil. Post-credit scene, Jeff, was excellent. And I'm now, like Graham, wondering how it all fits in. Anyway, I like the film from beginning to end. A genuinely funny action movie. And if you enjoyed Ant-Man and the Wasp, um, then you might like some more buddy comedy action movies. I'd recommend Beavers and Butthead Do America. (laughs) (laughs) And it just sinks lower. (laughs) That's a juvenile delinquent dim-witted metalheads go on a road trip to discover who stole their TV. It's much better than Dumber and Dumber. I'd also recommend Hot Fuzz. Edgar Wright directs Simon Pegg and Nick Frost in a super cop and his hapless sidekick. This is the middle film in the Three Flavours Cornetto trilogy, so this one features the original blue rapper Cornetto because it's about the boys in blue. I'd also recommend Wayne's World, a couple of losers take on the world and win. And while Mike Myers and Dana Carvel did not get on well on the set, uh, their comedic output is incredible. And the Blues Brothers. When the orphanage the Blues Brothers grew up in is threatened with closure, the brothers get the band back together for a benefit concert. John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd are brilliant from beginning to end as they fight their way past bazooka-wielding ex-girlfriends and Nazis. And then finally, 48 Hours. This is a movie that set the template for the modern buddy comedy action movie. Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte star as the convict and the hard-nosed cop on the trail of a killer. This is what on-screen chemistry looks like, as the friction between the two of them feels so real. The filmmakers originally wanted Clint Eastwood and Richard Pryor. Not sure how well that would have worked out. Certainly not politically correct today. I don't know if you've seen that film recently. <laughs> no, I haven't. No. Guess quite probably it isn't. Okay, that's the end of our movie reviews. And on to what else have we been watching? So, I have TVs, movies and comics again. This month has been a bit all over the place. I'm at the start of two new series. TV first. I'm watching the new Superman ancestor show known as Krypton. Just started on E4. Only two shows in and I'm still intrigued. Great cast. All the main characters are mostly British though, strangely. I'm also watching Disenchantment on netflix uh, this show is uh, from matt goring the creator of the simpsons and futurama it's set in the dark ages riffing on the game of thrones and lord of the rings very good and bingeable for movies for me uh, this has been a standout month of the movies we mentioned it earlier but we all went to see mission impossible fallout i can't praise this movie enough um Almost perfect summer blockbuster material. The plot has the depth of a car park puddle, but wow, what a ride. Compulsory watching for (laughs) any movie fan. (laughs) Car park puddle, I love that one. Very good. Okay. Uh, The Hotel Artemis is a great little sci-fi dystopian future movie starring Jodie Foster and David Bautista. Good fun romp and a welcome return for Foster. Claustrophobic, violent and very satisfying. On the comic front, or graphics novels as I've now been advised to call them, firstly, Descender. Descender is an epic sci-fi space opera where androids are outlawed and the galaxy is split between humanity and technology. Sony Pictures acquire the movie rights to Descender after a heated bidding war. It's that good. Companies are fighting over it. I'm just getting to the end of the series and it's just been announced that they're doing a new series as a prequel to Descender naturally called Ascender. And secondly, Copperhead, uh, written by Jay Faber. Uh, Copperhead is a grim mining town on a backwater planet. Single mother Clara is the new sheriff 
On her first day, she has to contend with a resentful deputy, a shady mining tycoon, and a family of alien hillbillies. Oh, and did I mention the massacre? Oh, yeah, there's a massacre. And that's all from me. Jeff, what have you been watching this month? So I'm just fascinated. Resentful, shady hillbillies. Neil, that could have been you. Um, for me, as always. That doesn't cinema. make any sense again. Says the man who comes just, from Stroud. Yeah, hillbillies. Yeah, <laughs> Do you really just say things and just don't think about it? No, carry on. I made a career out of that, Neil. Yeah, that's true. Um, for me, as always, cinema, TV and radio choices. So let's start with the cinema. Mary Shelley, finally, after missing this a couple of months ago at the cinema, took a trip to a small cinema in Wooten Under Edge. In fact, all the team, we managed to track this one down yeah. there. Uh, first half of the film is very promising and has an excellent performance from Elle Fanning, although she does need to move away from this type of role now. The second half strayed too much from the facts and spoilt my enjoyment somewhat. Oh, no, I'm sorry. What is it with you? No, what, just and having it, the facts, is it? Just really? let it roll. No, Historical no, no, accuracy. No. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> this one didn't need the paid holidays act of 1938. Oh, yeah. Were, whoa, 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 whoa. There were other aspects of it. Shut that up. <laughs> that said, Amelia Warner's music score is fantastic it for Mary Shelley, one excellent. of the best scores of the year. The Meg, Jason Statham against a 70-foot prehistoric shark in the box office surprise of the late summer. The Meh. <laughs> the Meh. No, The Meg. It has some of the worst dialogue of any film this year. <laughs> By miles. Uh, yeah. However, it does have Century. its tongue very firmly in its extra-large cheek. <laughs> it is good fun. It wasn't quirky enough for Neil, but then again, what is? <laughs> So, for TV, the making of Saturday Night Fever on oh BBC. God, he's on his disco stuff Yeah, again. disco stuff. Can't go wrong. That's when music was music, guys. <laughs> this was a catch-up on something I recorded a few months ago. Dancer Bruno Tonioli overseeing a detailed examination into the making of the classic 70s film. It's packed with facts I didn't know, such as the studio refusing to release it because the language was so bad. And, in fact, they had to make... 35% reduction in the language that was in there. Oh, wow. And it's still shocking now. The Mafia making an appearance on set and music which had to be removed because of copyright issues. Boss Gags asked for one of their songs to be removed. They later admitted that was a huge mistake that cost them $5 million. <laughs> Great fun, very informative. Uh, Mark Commode's Secret of Cinema, which is on BBC4. Brilliant, yeah, brilliant, yeah, brilliant series. Most of these episodes, scripted by Mark Commode mm. and Kim Newman, were excellent, with the one on horror being best of all. Only one, the heist movie, didn't quite work for me, as I felt there was a little bit of the history missing, which would have made it even more informative. But on the whole, a great series, and I hope there's more. I enjoyed the um, enjoyed the sci-fi one. I thought that was excellent as yeah. well. Yeah, well-researched, very well-researched. Yeah, well-researched, well-presented. For radio, the unquenchable thirst... And, all right, for radio, the unquenchable thirst of Dracula. What a great title. This is another one I've been saving. Mark Gaddis, him again, uh, who is a real champion of 60s and 70s horror, co-wrote this radio version of an unproduced Hammer horror script. It was unfilmed because of its budget. Dracula is dead and well and living in India. And he's up to his evil tricks until some plucky Brits track him down. Sadly, this one didn't work for me. The combination of Michael Sheen's script reading and performances just didn't gel. Although I did think the ending was excellent. Maybe if this experiment was repeated with a Hammer classic I can visualise, it might work better. And to be honest, I'm disappointed in myself that I didn't like this more. For me, I saw The Meg. 
Same as Jeff and Graham. The meh. Dinosaur crap. Underwater. <laughs> also, Mary Shelley. Well worth it. It strays from Jeff's version of fact, but only if you're an anally retentive with OCD. <laughs> Who likes the, reality? <laughs> the excellent biopic of an incredible lady and her ghost story is pretty good too. Also, as above, Mission Impossible Fallout and Hotel Artemis, both well worth the money. On Netflix, Au Service de la France, called in the UK a very secret service, very droll humour, dealing with office politics and bureaucracy with the occasional execution in the French Secret Service. It's very much a parody of Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, and certainly funny. For example, instead of the trolley with tea and biscuits, it's a trolley with alcohol and cakes, <laughs> set in the late 50s and early 60s. In one episode, they light the blue touch paper for the Bay of Pigs fiasco. Keep Wikipedia close. I, for one, am not knowledgeable on French history, especially with regards to Algeria, and brush up on your knowledge of Vichy France and the French collaborators with Germany in World War II. A comedy with some very silly humour, but with edges you can cut your finger on. As for next month... Neil will be reviewing Lucky. Ha, he's always that when he's following in my footsteps. That didn't sound too camp. <laughs> Jeff will be reviewing The Happy Time Murders. And Graham will be reviewing The Miseducation of Cameron Post. Now that's what I call an interesting selection of movies. And also next month we will have a new contributor called Lucy joining us with her take on aspects of modern cinema. Before the delights of a new podcast, we finish on a high with everyone's favourite quiz. It's as good an ending as The Equaliser 2. Oh, cheap shot, Neil. <laughs> well, Neil. Still doesn't oh, make it. That's good coming from you. It's still, still true, Jeff. Still true. Okay. Lads, prepare for something different this month. You see, oh, it's God. not a straightforward question. Three clips, three classic movies. All you have to do is guess the actor who is speaking the famous line and in what movie does he speak it. That'll stop you cheating, Neil. Just like in our sports feature, never a win, I was robbed. Once again, I will look to a fourth official. Anyway, here are the clips. Clip number one. You're going to need a bigger boat. Clip number two. I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And finally, clip number three. Greetings and salutations. Good luck. Answers next time. So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another At The Flicks is in the can. So it only remains for us to say... Goodbye, as I'm off to check with the video ref as to why I didn't win the sports movie debate. And I'd like to thank Graham for pronouncing me the winner and the listeners for validating my win, hopefully. Please. And to Jeff, I'd just like to chant, Who are you? Who are you? <laughs> Brilliant. And to everyone else, thanks, thanks for, for listening, listening and, and goodbye. goodbye.